You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we welcome back Andrew Clard, and the three of us are going to be talking about the recent PBS documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust, by filmmakers Ken Burns, Lynn Novick, and Sarah Botstein. The film discusses the role of anti-Semitism and anti-immigrant sentiment in the U.S. in the Holocaust. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking about the U.S. and the Holocaust, but first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I are going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. Today is October 5th, and we are going to be discussing for this current events section a speech by Vladimir Putin from September 30th, so just a few days ago. On September 30th, Putin gave a very long speech at the Kremlin in Moscow, in which he announced the results of these sham referendums that had happened in the Donetsk and Lugansk parts of Ukraine and claimed that there was popular will for these parts of Ukraine to be taken over by Russia and went on a long diatribe against the West. And we're going to be talking about aspects of that speech today. It should be noted that as Putin was giving this speech, the Ukrainian army was pushing into Lyman, which was one of these areas that Putin was claiming to uh, be in the process of liberating. And by the end of the next day, they had retaken this important rail town of Lyman. Andrew, you wanted to maybe get start off with a brief summary of the speech, and then we'll get into some of our reactions. Yeah, so uh, he begins crowing that, oh, he's in favor of the self-determination of nations, and the people of these regions have overwhelmingly chosen to become part of Russia again. Then he calls on the Ukrainian government, which he calls the Kiev regime, to immediately cease fire to return to the negotiating table, but the choice of the people, supposedly they chose in these referenda, uh, will not be discussed. They have become our citizens forever. Okay, so he's basically said, we'll negotiate if you let us capture all of this territory and it's 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 off the table forever. Uh, and then he goes into what you call the, the diatribe against the West. And for all that one can say against the West, what he's talking about is, is truly unhinged, but it's a very strong anti-colonialist line that he's putting forward against the elites uh, in the West basically saying that all, all they try to do is loot and plunder and subjugate all, all of the other countries. He calls it racism. What if not racism is the West's dogmatic conviction that its civilization and neoliberal culture is an indisputable model for the entire world to follow? He rails against the, you know, the unipolar U.S. power, the unipolar world, he says, is inherently anti-democratic and unfree. It's false and hip- hypocritical through and through. Then he gives a kind of veiled warning that a lot of people have been concerned about. The U.S. is the only country that's used nuclear weapons twice, and they created a precedent. 
the the West has got the financial supremacy. They got the financial upper hand with their sanctions. But people cannot be fed with printed dollars and euros. You need food. You need energy, right? And Ukraine is a breadbasket, and Russia is a supplier of energy. So it's a very thinly veiled threat, but it's a real threat right there. And more railing against uh, the West. They are trying to dismantle Russia. The dictatorship of the Western elites targets all societies, including the citizens of Western countries themselves. There's a complete renunciation of what it means to be human, the overthrow of faith and traditional values. This is coming to resemble a religion in reverse, pure Satanism. So he's going full Q here. And in the midst of this, he comes out as a supporter of freedom and justice, so-called, the right people to determine their own future. When you, when you look at what he means by freedom and justice, what he talks about in the next paragraph is one of the most disgusting, virulent, anti-trans and virulently uh, homophobic things that, that I've, I've read. That, that's basically the speech. Hey, you know, I, I, I can't say I've ever read a full speech by Putin before, so this was interesting. And I don't know how much consistency there is in his ideology from speech to speech, or everything or everything is just sort of opportunistic and thrown together for a particular audience in a particular moment. I just don't know. But in this particular moment, we know that he is reeling from some real military setbacks. And as we've discussed before, the internal opposition in Russia is heightened. He's got criticism from all sides, from the far right and from anti-war people. The conscription has been very unpopular. People are fleeing the country. Since the mobilization was announced, probably double the number of people have fled as they've actually uh, conscripted. They wanted to get 300,000 additional troops. They seem to have gotten about 200,000. A lot of people were too old or they got medical conditions they can't serve, you know, and then you got the people fleeing. But altogether, all, all it looks like about 400,000 people have, have left the country in, in the past couple of weeks. And apparently Putin actually issued some kind of apology recently for mistakes that were made in the conscription process, which is quite telling. Um, I've never heard of Putin apologizing for anything before. It's like completely against the authoritarian playbook to offer an apology. So there must be a lot of criticism. He's facing a lot of problems internally that he would even offer some kind of conditional apology for mistakes in the rollout of conscription. Yeah, well, there were a lot of renewed protests all, all over Russia. They jailed, you know, arrested all kinds of people. Uh, I don't know the numbers, but it was a renewed upsurge of protest after the initial uh, surge of protest was quelled through force, you know, at the end of February, beginning of March, when they began this war. The ideological thrust of the whole thing is an extreme nationalism. All of Russian history and Russia's relationship with the West is cast in this epic, uh, age-long struggle of the West against Russia, uh, Russia being this underdog, uh, fighting against the decadence and imperialism of the West. Russia's territorial integrity and cultural homogeneity is like as this strong theme throughout and it's like constantly under attack by the west culturally and economically and politically so there are always like really strong fascist themes throughout you know it's kind of an ultra nationalist themes and cultural conservatism and grievance I mean, the, the, the grievance just is like right there, all throughout, right on the surface. And it does remind one of Trump. It reminds one of Hitler. 
Mein Kampf is, is you know, the original grievance yeah. tract. And then there's also this ap- approach that you mentioned of like trying to appropriate the criticism of Putin. He wants to claim to be the one who's for self-determination and freedom and claim that the West is the one that's uh, racist and, and denying people their sovereignty and th- taking away freedom from people, which, you know, you know, we're familiar with those kind of approaches in the U.S. all the time, right? Tucker Carlson takes the same approach. You know, I'm not the racist one. You're the racist one. You know, I'm not I'm not the anti-freedom one. You're the person who's against freedom. And, you know, that's sort of reversing the truth. Uh, you know, it's th- that kind of Orwellian uh, logic that I don't know if people are expected to believe it or if it's just supposed to demoralize people. And so they feel like they don't have the grounds to uh, stand up to the dictator anymore because words become like meaningless and ideas become so relative and unmoored from reality. And we're just in this fog all the time where we have to just accept that life is just a battle between different powers and there's nothing we can do about it other than to like submit to one pole or the other. Yeah, I mean, it's very clear that he wants to construct an alternative pole of global capital against the West, against the U.S., you know, and we know that they've been trying that. And here's the ideology that he wants to to govern it is this basically anti-colonialist so-called stuff. It's working less well than it was because nothing fails like failure and the military failures in the war have caused, you know, other countries like uh, China and Iran to kind of uh, keep their distance a bit from, from Russia now. Why then is he reiterating it? I think it's perhaps his desperation that uh, he thinks that Russia is not going to be able to win this war. It's going to lose the war on its own. And so it's basically trying to draw the whole world into a world war. I mean, he thinks he's 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 in a war with NATO and the U.S. and so forth. And I think he wants to draw forces on the other side. And so he's kind of like saying things, you know, for, for their benefit. I, I don't think he, he thinks that his words are going to you know, change things by themselves. But, you know, this is the ideology that uh, they're going to use to, to try to make it happen. You know, there are a lot of aspects of his speech that sound like they could come right out of a Noam Chomsky paper on the Ukraine conflict or something we might read in Jacobin. This championing of multipolarity, this championing of anything that is uh, breaking the power of the West, this view of 20th century history in which the U.S. seems to be the only actor with agency, uh, treating uh, Ukrainians as if they are only a puppet of the West with no interest of their own. This charge of uh, Russophobia that is a way to dismiss all criticism of the Putin regime. Um, and we've, we've heard all of those things in different forms from some people on the left over the, the past few years. So it's interesting to see this sort of cross-pollination of ideas between Putin apologists and leftists. I mean, for anybody who might want to be taken in by this rhetoric. I just have two things to say. First of all, he makes a huge deal out of the overwhelming support to be annexed by Russia from the people in, you know, eastern Ukraine and Crimea. 
And that is all a complete lie. They were sham referenda. You had people with guns going to people's homes, knocking on the door and saying, here, cast a ballot. Okay, so people were voting at gunpoint. And the kind of election results or referendum results that you, you, we saw are nothing like what you see in any free and fair election. Here are the percentages of the four regions that voted to join Russia. 99%. 98%, 93%, 87%. You don't get numbers like that in a free and fair election. And when he begins by saying the people have chosen and we're respecting their will, it is complete and utter garbage. And when you call a press conference or whatever, you have a big speech, in order to celebrate and promote a lie like this, all of the rest of what you said has to be discounted. The other thing I want to do is I want to read out for people who, who think that this is some sort of progressive cause, this multipolarity and uh, anti-colonialism. Okay. He says, majority of people you know, have a natural right to freedom and justice, the right to determine their own future. And then he says, I want to address all the citizens of Russia, quote, do we want to have here in our country in Russia, parent number one, parent number two, and parent number three? They have completely lost it instead of mother and father. Do we want our schools to impose on our children from their earliest days in school perversions that lead to degradation and extinction? He's talking about not bearing children there? Do we want to drum into our heads the ideas that certain other genders exist along with women and men and to offer them gender reassignment surgery? Is this what we want for our country and our children? This is all unacceptable to us. We have a different future of our own. I'm, 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 I'm sorry I even have to, had to read that, but, but I had to read it. Yeah. Well, uh, up next, our current events section will be talking about the new documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust. For today's main segment, which we, we are recording on October 3rd, we are going to be talking about the recent PBS documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust, by filmmakers Ken Burns, Lynn Novick, and Sarah Botstein. The documentary discusses a somewhat lesser-known aspect of the Holocaust, uh, the way in which politics in the U.S., especially anti-Semitism, anti-immigrant sentiment, and ambivalence toward the Nazis, contributed to uh, events that were going on in Europe. The documentary discusses uh, U.S. immigration policy, which was anti-Semitic and racist, and the way that immigration policy created barriers to accepting refugees who were fleeing Germany and Poland and other places in Europe. Um, the way in which the refugee crisis in Europe led to uh, genocide. They discusses sympathy for fascism amongst parts of the U.S. population, widespread anti-Semitism, and even like denialism about the reality of the Holocaust that was going on in real time in the United States, and the way in which all this public opinion acted as a constraint against policymakers, constraining them for taking perhaps more aggressive measure, measures to save people from genocide. We wanted to just discuss this documentary, uh, which obviously people should watch for themselves if they haven't seen it yet, because so many of these themes are directly relevant to our situation today in the U.S. and other parts of the world. Uh, attitudes toward immigration, attitudes to people who are targets of fascism or right-wing violence, uh, misinformation, these are all like directly relevant themes today. 
uh, the question of whether you can ignore or appease fascists, what happens when racism or fascism are taken to their logical extremes. These are all things that we talk about often on this podcast in different forms and things that are, you know, obviously hot topics today in American politics. Joining us as she often does on the podcast is Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative and frequent guest on the podcast. So welcome, Anne. Welcome, man. Welcome to you. Yeah, let me just say, what Brendan has just said could sound very alarmist. Oh, nothing Trump has done and nothing, you know, these people have done compares to the Holocaust. Yeah, that's part, I think, of the point that the U.S. and the Holocaust is making. The historian Deborah Lipstadt says at one point, you know, with Hitler, it was drip, drip, drip. The Nazis increased their persecution slowly, step by step, always looking over their shoulder at what the reaction would be. Towards the end of the the third episode, another historian, Timothy Snyder, says, don't kid yourself, the people who committed the, the genocide were people just like us. It's a very kind of step-by-step, plodding, chronological uh, account, you know, and it reaches way back even into the 19th century, but I think that that is a big part of the point. You know, I'm reminded of, God knows when it was, it must have been the late 1970s, and, you know, you had Nazis marching in Skokie, Illinois, which was a largely Jewish suburb of, of Chicago. And the people were opposing that, and the slogan was, all cancers start small. And that, I I think, is a big part of the point is, you know, we've got the cancer within the body politic. And it's been small at times, now it's getting larger, but, you know, if it's unchecked, the final solution is is where it's going to end. Yeah, that's one of the things that I kept thinking about while watching the documentary. I mean, there are all these different points of view, different political perspectives, whether they were isolationists in the U.S., pacifists in the U.S., different forms of like sympathy for fascism in Europe, in the U.S., some of them more virulently anti-Semitic than others. But you saw all these trends kind of playing out to the logical extreme, which resulted in genocide, killing of two-thirds of the Jews in Europe. I'm sure that a lot of those a lot of those people with those differing perspectives didn't all explicitly in their mind start off with a position like we need to kill millions of Jews in gas chambers. They might have had much more uh, mildly anti-Semitic positions or mildly right-wing positions or just some sort of like apolitical isolationist positions, whatever. But in a sort of situation like this, where all these positions are kind of pushed to their logical end, they, they end up at the same place. That's like one of the most disturbing things about this part of world history, right? And one of the most disturbing things about this documentary. Initially, the Germans hadn't planned to kill everyone. They planned to get them out of Germany and have Germany free of Jews. And then Hitler wanted to get them all out of Europe and have Europe free of Jews. And uh, total annihilation was the last choice when the other things didn't work. That's where the rest of the world becomes complicit in, in not taking refugees and not trying to stop him, etc. Yeah, I, I think this is one of the, 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 the main things that I learned from the movie that I had not known, not 
really thought about, but I grew up in a, in, a, in a Jewish family. I was born 10 years after the war ended. Part of my family was in Europe. Part of it was exterminated. Uh, others survived the death camps. So I, I knew a lot of stuff, but the, the, the point that Anne just made, I did not understand, which is that Hitler wanted to have, you know, a big German area, you know, a living room, Lebensraum for Germany, to have all of that free from Jews. But as he's increasing his extension of power, spreading out, conquering more and more, he's bringing more and more Jews under his control. He wants to get them all out. He can't get all the Jews that are under his control out because other countries will not take them. The U.S. will not take them. Cuba will not take them. European countries that he doesn't control will not take them. The Soviet Union won't take them. The British won't let them go into Palestine. So he wants them out of his control. Nobody else wants them. So if you want a, a, a Jew-free Nazi empire, what's left is to exterminate them. That became like the only way to solve the, the problem on terms that were acceptable to Hitler. It wasn't like, you know, there was a plan from the get-go to exterminate the Jews. So the anti-immigration sentiment and policy of the United States were, and, and other countries, weren't just an ideological affinity, and they weren't only something that uh, prevented Jews from being saved. It was that the restrictions on immigration were directly what led, you know, partly to, to the extermination of, of, of millions of people. Well, why don't we move through the three-part documentary in a little more detail and look at some of the ideas as they're presented chronologically in the films. Um, in the first part, the U.S. immigration policy that we've both uh, referred to now several times is a, uh, a major theme of that first episode. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about that, Andrew? They mentioned that, um, of course, Africans were forcibly brought into the United States, but that was kind of uh, an exception. In the 19th century, Chinese were excluded. There was the Chinese Exclusion Act that prevented people from China uh, immigrating to the U.S. Immigration policy, they said, was fairly loose up till the Civil War, and that uh, was connected to the fact that the immigrants were white and from Northern Europe. But after the Civil War, the character of the immigrant population changed significantly. Lots of them were Jews fleeing anti-Semitism, pogroms, anti-Jewish riots, and even when they were admitted into the U.S., they, they were not welcomed. Even American Jews didn't accept them. In this new environment, all kinds of social problems started to be blamed on immigrants. Unions opposed immigration for economic reasons, taking away jobs. At this point, you begin to get a fear of replacement. Same kind of thing we're hearing about today. It didn't begin recently. And at this time, you begin to get a eugenics movement. Teddy Roosevelt, president, uh, he was a eugenicist. Eugenics had other prominent supporters. Uh, their causes were funded by Carnegie and Rockefeller. They wanted restrictions on breeding, you know, forced sterilization. 33 of 48 states passed eugenicist laws, including forced sterilization. And this was all melded together with anti-immigration policy because the people coming into the U.S. or who wanted to come into the U.S. were supposedly inferior 
in some eugenic sense. The cause of eugenics was fused with the cause of anti-immigration. And then you had, in the 1920s, after the Bolshevik Revolution, the anti-immigration cause fused with uh, the Red Scare, the internal fight in the U.S. to fight socialism, communism. In 1924, Congress passed the Johnson-Reed Act, the Immigration Act of 1924. It established quotas on immigration that were based on nationality. It barred all immigration from Asia. It didn't specifically single out the Jews, but it had very, very severe restrictions on immigration from places where Jews were immigrating from or wanted to immigrate from and fleeing. It had no exception for refugees. And this law was was the major law that passed in the entire framework for U.S. immigration policy until 1965. But it was um, all-encompassing. I hadn't known this. During the Depression, the U.S. deported 1.6 million Mexicans. And I, I hadn't known known that and film said many of them were actually citizens and the u.s just rounded them up and deported them so it was not just anti-semitism it was anti-foreigners period right let me say one more thing about the uh, immigration act of uh, 1924 which is somewhat before that point this guy madison grant the eugenicist uh when the immigration act of 24 was passed he said that it came just in time to prevent the Nordic people, the Nordic people in the United States from being overrun. You know, so this is again great replacement thinking that was already very prominent at, at that time. After 24, some people were trying to, well, they tried to oppose the passage of that act. It didn't work. When the refugee problem got bigger and bigger, there were moves to try to relax immigration. There were moves to try to tighten immigration, and nothing happened. It just remained in place. We all pro probably know or should know that there's always been a huge anti-immigrant, anti-foreigner sentiment in the country. I saw a marvelous exhibit at the New, uh, New York City Museum that showed what was going on in the 1800s and the major political parties were, were vying to be the most anti-immigrant and most exclusionary. Huge electoral fights and other fights over the issue. So the roots are very deep uh, even before the Jews who start coming in the late part of the 1800s, 1870s. And that's, well, that's something we're going to get into, was how much of this, what happened during the Holocaust was new. Certainly it was new in many senses, but it, the sentiment behind it was not new to Americans. All of this goes along with what Marxist Humanist Initiative has been saying for a very long time now, since Trump came to power, is that it's not just Trump, and Trump didn't create this. Trumpism is a pre-existing condition, and the, the documentary, I think, made that very, very clear with respect to the issues of uh, immigration and anti-Semitism and racist uh, sentiment in the U.S. But, but there was sentiment on, on both sides, even in these pre-war times. The German government denied that it was persecuting the Jews and demanded that the U.S. stop 
all the demonstrations that were breaking out in the U.S. in 1933. So there were Nazi, American Nazi uh, parties and rallies, but they were also anti-Nazi ones in the U.S. way back in, in March of 1933. There was a huge rally at Madison Square Garden, and outside it, there were so many people they wouldn't fit in. Al Smith spoke, Rabbi Weiss, who was the leading American spokesman for the anti-Nazi sentiment, spoke, and 70 cities had rallies involving a million Americans, according to the film. Another point that the movie makes all throughout, very effectively, is it's not the case that everything the Nazis did was in secret and nobody knew what was going on and Americans, you know, had no way of knowing what was going on. People knew what was going on if they cared to know. Within the first 100 days of Hitler's reign, I don't know who counted this, 3,000 uh, U.S. news reports appeared. In the U.S. press, 3,000 news reports appeared on the Nazi persecution. The problem was they were typically not on page one. They were typically buried on page six, page seven, something like that. So it was easy to ignore them, but they were there. Uh, the other proof that people knew was the fact that these right-wing groups were talking about it. They were talking about the need to remain isolationist in spite of what was going on. And, you know, we'd just been through World War One, lost many, many American soldiers, and the um, pacifist movements uh, were, in fact, isolationist movements. And there was a huge student movement they showed in the film. So that Roosevelt had all these pressures on him not to do anything and not to make too much noise about it because sentiment in the U.S. was definitely against going to war. They also managed to censor Hollywood. The Germans did. They went along with the, the German rules on censorship. So from 1933 to 39, there was not one word about Nazis on the screen. Basically, the, the Nazis had a lot of influence over what was going on with the, the, the newsreel coverage, which was a big thing back then. And this is despite the fact that, you know, there were a lot of influential Jews in Hollywood, uh, including, you know, studio heads and everything. It wasn't until, what, 39 that the first anti-Nazi film is released in the U.S., that's six years into Hitler's reign. And the result being that sentiment was not in favor of doing anything about Nazism or the Jews. There was a poll they cited in the late 30s that said two-thirds of Americans blamed the Jews for what was happening to them. You know the old uh, story about, oh, the Jews must have done something really terrible to Hitler to make him so mad. And people thought that. Right. And and this was also in the U.S. government, this, this kind of sentiment. You know, when you were talking about what was going on in 1933, and you had Al Smith speaking against the Nazis, equating them with the, the Ku Klux Klan. These protests are taking place. The Nazis are really pissed off. They wanted to stop. The Secretary of State, FDR Secretary of State, Cordell Hall, said that the Nazi persecution of the Jews would stop if these anti-Nazi protests were to stop. And, you know, Hitler goes, well, you know, the, all these reports of persecution are 
you know, he didn't say fake news, he said Jewish lies. Same thing. Yeah, but there was constant denial um, from Germany that these things were happening, and yet there was unmistakable evidence at the time that a few people in the U.S. were concerned with uh, Emanuel Seller. Congress was the main friend of the Jews for decades um, and didn't get anywhere, and uh, other people, the rabbis, uh, radical rabbis who were involved. But, yeah, it really wasn't until 1938 with Kristallnacht and the word got out about what was happening, the extreme uh, hunting down and, and murdering of Jews in the streets uh, all over uh, Germany. And also that's when Hitler expelled thousands of Jews from Germany to Poland. And so the same tensions and battles were going on in Poland with the anti-Semitism there. So, so this becomes known. This was on the front pages of the U.S. newspapers daily, according to the documentary. So, people who could have ignored the reports of the of the rallies and the menacing language and the threats, um, and could have ignored the many the many restrictions on Jews before this. Right? People lost all their civil rights. They lost their ability to to travel, all kinds of things. But the Americans basically ignored that until Kristallnacht, and they couldn't ignore it anymore. FDR withdrew the U.S. diplomats from Germany, but no other country did. And at this time, and, and pretty early into the second episode, what you get is, as a result of Kristallnacht, they say, people could already see the handwriting on the wall. Okay, They could already see that the dialectic of events, they didn't say dialectic of events, but that's what it is, was moving towards extermination of the Jews, towards genocide. They talk about Raymond Geist, who was the top U.S. diplomat in Berlin. And this is late 1938, early 1939. He foresaw the Nazi effort to exterminate the Jews. And Deborah Lipstadt, you know, they have a clip of her, and she says that was the point. That was the time to take action versus the genocide before it happened. You know, I, it, it sounds like a simple point, you know, and in retrospect it's obvious, but you think about the conditions that we face right now. It's that same drip, 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 and oh, well, Trump isn't Hitler. Well, you know, Hitler wasn't Hitler until he was. If, if you wait for the cancer to spread, then it is too late, and the time for action is beforehand and that's not just a matter of comment on the past it's a guide to action now i think and it's a really simple point it's very easy to get the important thing is this is what has to guide our action but the opposite happened in in the u.s um, and around the world uh, britain allowed ten thousand children in but they didn't let their parents in but in the u.s they couldn't even pass a, a bill through Congress even to let in some children. It was put into Congress. Eleanor Roosevelt backed it. She was the, the most pro-save-the-Jews person associated with the administration besides Seller. At the time the bill was put into Congress, there were many more bills that were to lower the quotas of immigrants rather than raise them. 
and a poll at that time, again, we don't have the citations, but it was said in the documentary that 40% of U.S. people thought the Jews had too much power in the U.S. and the vast majority of non-Jews were opposed to raising their quotas of Jews. So it was an impossible situation. Very powerful forces opposed easing the immigration restrictions. The Daughters of the American Revolution, the American Legion. You had this guy, Father Coughlin, very notorious anti-Semite, a Catholic priest. Uh, he railed against the communistic Jews. He claimed that Jewish businesses were firing Christians to make room for Jewish employees. He had the, the growth of the, the German-American Bund, which was mostly either Americans born in Germany or at least of, of German heritage. They were organizing you know, against this. They managed to amass 20,000 people in Madison Square Garden. But the, the really weird thing, but it's understandable, is the worse the refugee crisis gets, the more public opinion tilts against the, the, the Jews. And people are like, oh my God, you know, these people who are fleeing and stuff, look, it's not our problem. We shouldn't take them in. So the, the anti-immigration sentiment becomes stronger rather than weaker. There was a senator, Robert Reynolds, who said, I would build a wall, which is familiar to us today. And he said Jews were systematically building an empire in the U.S. Around this time, though, the Jews began to organize into more agitational organizations and relief groups and tried to get the Jews out even they even raised uh, a half million dollars the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee and they were trying to get Jews out uh, Belgium and other European countries took them but they were the only ones the Americans and the rest of the world didn't budge and then those Jews who fled to France and Netherlands were, of course, exterminated when Germany overran them. Right. But it wasn't only, in the U.S., it wasn't only Jewish organizations that, that, that tried to help. They made a point that there were, like, uh, the YMCA was active, the American Friends Service Committee, the Unitarian Service Committee, uh, and there was a really interesting segment about something that I really was before very hazy about, uh, a U.S. Uh, journalist named Varian Fry. He wasn't Jewish, uh, but he went to France and he began an effort to get Jewish intellectuals out of France, which was, you know, now under Nazi occupation, Vichy France. And the State Department, U.S. State Department, tried to thwart Varian Fry's efforts, but he managed to remain in France for seven months. And during this time, he was able to get out 2,000 people out of France. Jewish intellectuals, but also people who were not intellectuals. I mean, they included people like the philosopher Hannah Arendt. Uh, they included the painter Marc Chagall, names that the people probably have heard of. But there were like regular people who were uh, able to get out as well through his efforts. We need to talk about how much the U.S. State Department blocked all the efforts of these committees and other efforts to get Jews out. They didn't just not let them into the U.S., they tried to stop them from operating and agitating and were just 
so intent on making sure that Roosevelt didn't try to lead towards war. The State Department was full of old-line officials, and they had one program, apparently, which was to stay out of war, and they did all kinds of horrible things, like when money was raised to send to organizations in Germany for people's passage, they blocked it. They blocked them from even sending the money for months and months. You know, the time to act was already almost passed. I mean, earlier the Germans had made it hard to leave, but now the Germans were were letting people leave. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. One of the themes that is recurring is not just the anti-immigrant and anti-Jewish sentiment uh, in America, but also just how constraining the 
that weight was on U.S. policymakers, even, you know, that they didn't want to frame the war itself as a war to save the Jews, that toward the end of the war, when opportunities were presented to potentially liberate some of the concentration camps, those opportunities weren't followed up on because people worried that it would seem like they were prioritizing saving the Jews over uh, defeating the Nazis. I mean, that was sort of, that sort of becomes like the the most striking example of it, right? Um, and one one that is maybe even familiar to people who haven't seen the documentary because we, we hear about that sometimes, about how there were delays in liberating the, the concentration camps what, even when Allied troops had the opportunity. But it's one of these things where everything was like taken to its logical extreme in World War II. And anti-Semitism was taken like all the way to the extreme, where before, unlike Europe and the Americas, it was much less virulent in some way, and well, in many ways, much less virulent and wasn't like oriented around like industrial level genocide. And then like this sort of politics in the U.S. of like not wanting to appear to be pro-Jew or uh, sympathetic toward uh, Eastern European immigrants, politicians felt constrained by that. That was like taken to this logical extreme by the end of the war where they were delaying and liberating concentration camps that they knew were massacring Jews uh, because they didn't want to seem like they were rushing to the aid of Jews too quickly. It's just such a crazy time in human history, this period. I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but to see like the historical lessons not having been absorbed and learned by humanity and to see the same themes like continuing through the 20th century and emerging now strong again in the 21st century is really alarming. Yeah, and a lot of what happened in the U.S. as shown in the documentary concerns President Roosevelt, and they spend a lot of time sort of trying to exonerate him from blame by stressing the extent of the opposition to sending any aid or increasing the refugees by Congress that blocked everything he tried to do. We can discuss whether they were too kind to him, wanted to excuse him, but he he was no hero to the Jews. Eleanor Roosevelt was. She went around speaking about these things. But he didn't, and he came right out and said that I can't get too far ahead of the sentiment in the U.S. He wanted to prepare for war. They wouldn't let him do that at first. Then when the U.S. did get uh, a little involved, what they did was send airplanes to the U.K., but they didn't want to get into the war itself. This hesitancy around appearing too friendly to the Jews on Roosevelt's part and, you know, other people, uh, politicians in the U.S. I just kept thinking of Joe Biden and immigration today and how after, even after all the mass protests against the horrors of Trump's anti-Latin American uh, immigration policies, there's such hesitancy uh, on the Biden administration's part to appear to be taking the opposite approach of welcoming immigrants with open arms and, and doing our, our best to deal with refugee crisis as they come over the southern border in the U.S. There's this worry that the right-wing reaction is going to be potent and it's going to hurt the Democrats politically, and so they feel constrained by that. And there's a real 
Like there's a real political logic to it. It's not like they're just foolish or they're bad people or something. It's not that simple. It's like there's an actual political logic to uh, the Biden administration's like real hesitancy to take a more active role here. Sure, especially with elections coming up and that being Trump's main theme still is close the border, build the wall. Nothing's changed in six years. When the, the U.S. did enter the war, one of the objective considerations was that if the U.S. were to say, okay, what we're doing is we're fighting a war to save the Jews from extermination, they were afraid that among the troops, you get a lot, a lot of people who would not want to fight. They would not want to fight for the Jews. And so the FDR administration w- was afraid that anything that it would do that was directly for the Jews for the refugees from the, the, the victims of persecution, if that's the way that they made it look or that was the direction in which their efforts went, that would feed into the pro-fascist propaganda in the U.S. that, you know, these people are controlled by the Jews and in league with the Jews and the communists and, and controlled by them and so forth. So one of the historians that they interviewed for the, the film and appears on screen, Daniel Green, said, yeah, rally as a nation to defend defeat fascism. That was the call. Just don't rally as a nation to save the victims of fascism. You know, that kind of put it pithily, I thought. So whenever there were to be an appeal to do something to help the refugees even, it's not just, you know, bombing the tracks to Auschwitz, but kind of anything, anything that was done to help the refugees to save lives directly was nixed by the U.S. government. And they just said, look, the, the way to end this is to defeat fascism. The way we're going to end this problem is to defeat fascism. And there is a certain logic to it, but it's not true. Because by then it's too late. And I think it was Deborah Lipstadt who, who made that, that, that point. In fact, by the time that the U.S. entered the, the war, it was already too late. By the time they, they arrive on uh, continental Europe soil, with Normandy, most of the exterminations of the Jews had already taken place. So it sounds logical, but it's 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 not. You know, it, it doesn't it doesn't match the the actual conditions that were on the ground. And again, the the fear by the U.S. politicians is the sentiment in the country. At the same time, that sentiment against going to war starts to change. Around 42, it's not everyone's an isolationist by then, but there are still huge, huge right-wing movements, particularly Lindbergh's American First. It was the largest anti-war movement ever in the history of the world, and a lot of people were in that. So reminds one of the people who want to conciliate with Trumpism. There's fear of civil war here or whatever and there was also a huge propaganda machine by the um, America First people and others they put out constant claims that Nazi agents were coming into the country along with Jewish refugees when they let in a handful of Jewish refugees that they were really Nazi agents in disguise and people were scared of Nazism too it's not that they weren't Eleanor Roosevelt writes that there was a hysteria about fifth columnists. That was a factor also. 
I mean, Hitler originally was hoping that he would find allies in the U.S. and the U.S. would be on his side in the war because uh, they, they felt an ideological affinity with the United States because of its racist history and racist movements. And they directly modeled the Nuremberg Laws after U.S. immigration law. They were trying to find ways of how do you classify someone who's a human being and they're in your country, but we don't want to call them citizens. And they like, you know, they were able to, they been they sent scholar, Nazi scholars to the U.S. to study U.S. immigration law. And they were able to find a model there for what later became the Nuremberg Laws. There's a lot of cross-pollination of ideas between the far right and Germany and the U.S. Well, we could go on and on about racism in the U.S., but I'd like to focus on what did the U.S. people know when and what did they do about it and who was complicit in keeping the information about the genocide from them and discouraging any action on their part. In 1942, of course, when the extermination campaign um, really gets underway in the sense of building more and more concentration camps. The Germans found a new poison that killed more efficiently. Zyklon was cheaper, and so they said, well, let's uh, stop bothering to move people around. Let's just kill them all. And the World Jewish Congress, uh, Stephen Weiss, who was the rabbi who was most vocal on behalf of the Jews, they were all speaking out. And they gave the information they had to the Associated Press. And what they reported was that two million people had already been killed in 42. And it was picked up by the newspapers, but it wasn't printed very much. They just printed little tiny stories in the newspapers. Even on the front page, they were little stories. And they were filled with skeptical remarks. They kept saying, and this is all the major newspapers, they kept saying, one report is that two million were killed. Ridiculous innuendos that that none of it was true or not all of it was true. The film singles out one newspaper, a black newspaper, the Pittsburgh Courier was the only newspaper that put it, the story of the two million killed so far on the front page. And so people were skeptical. The American public was skeptical. Uh, there was a poll in January of 1943 in the U.S. that most people didn't believe that the Nazis had actually killed two million people. Either it was beyond their comprehension which one might understand, but more likely it was the way it was presented in the U.S. with such skepticism and so little attention. So that's pretty scary. Uh, for me, the most moving and, and important thing in the entire uh, three episodes, they had one of the GIs who liberated the Camp Dachau. And, and he was not Jewish, and he wrote to his father, he says the worst crime isn't the extermination. He says the worst crime is the spreading of the thought that leads to this kind of thing. He says even more than punishment of the criminals here is the stamping out of their philosophy. Uh, and his name was Joseph A. Wyant. You know, but then you get kind of like the, the sum up. Deborah Lipstadt, the historian, says in many respects the Nazis accomplished their goal. Jews have not replaced themselves since then. In other words, the world Jewish population has not recovered to the point that it was 
at prior to the, the Holocaust. Uh, Two-thirds of uh, European Jews were killed. And post-Holocaust, post-war, the U.S. sentiment, public opinion concerning immigration gets even worse than it had been before. Only 5% of the U.S. population wanted more refugees in. 30% wanted stricter quotas. The same thing was happening in other countries. The British were restricting Jewish immigration to Palestine. Then eventually the immigration policies in the U.S. were relaxed, and so people came in, but that included the Nazis and collaborators of the Nazis, and they were welcome because they were anti-communist. You know, the most uh, famous cases, of course, the, the, the Nazi um, scientist, Werner von Braun, became part of the, the U.S. war machine. And then you have uh, Deborah Lipstadt saying that it was not until the Israelis captured Eichmann, a major Nazi functionary, he was captured in Argentina, put on trial in Israel, eventually hung. She says it was not until that, and that got major play on television and so forth, that Americans understood the uniqueness and magnitude of the, the genocide that had taken place. And in fact, it was during that trial that the term genocide kind of got, like, coined. And uh, Manuel Seller, who uh, Anne uh, spoke about, he finally was able to get an immigration reform bill uh, through Congress that eliminated the quotas, but it didn't restrict uh, it, it didn't lift restrictions on immigration from uh, the Americas, uh, and it didn't do anything specifically about you know um, refugees. And the structure of the film is such that it ends um, with a brief discussion of racism and anti-immigrant sentiment since World War II, ending up with a discussion of the Trump administration and modern uh, fascist sentiment in the U.S., something we discuss all the time on this podcast. So uh, it was a film that really is, is trying to clearly make a statement about the dangers of rising authoritarianism today and the dangers of not taking these issues seriously now, uh, dangers of conciliation, of waiting, of, of pacifism, of isolationism, of appeasement, so I was born the year the war ended, 1945. So you would think that there would be a lot of discussion of the war during my childhood. And I was trying to remember any and uh, could remember almost none. And one can't help but wonder if my generation had been educated and the, and the two, that have, two or three that have followed uh, my generation. Uh, we might be in a different place today. Maybe there would have been some greater effort to uproot this strain in U.S. sentiment, admiration for Nazis and their philosophies. For those of you who aren't Jewish <laughs> or aren't old Jews like me, you have to understand that our grandparents who came over from uh, Europe in uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s, always lived in fear of another pogrom. No matter how well they did in the U.S., they were always mindful that at any time there could be, your neighbors could turn against you and come with pitchforks. And for our parents' generation uh, that was born here but lived through the war, there was never any relaxation either because they thought that it could happen here. 
They didn't say it can't happen here, uh, which many people did say. But I think succeeding generations were very aware that it could, that that anti-Semitism that was always there, that that white supremacy was always there, could lead to their being exterminated as well. You you know, I I have relatives who did perish in in the Holocaust, some who survived the, the camps as well as uh, relatives who were already in in the States. I maybe heard something about the Holocaust, certainly by by the age of 14, I I, I knew about it, but I'm not sure I knew about it before the age of 11. It was just regarded as something, first of all, you don't want to tell really, you know, young people, because it'll traumatize them and scar them. And... I don't know that that's wrong. Also, these folks, the the, the, the Jews, uh, you know, in the U.S., they were traumatized. And, of course, uh, people managed to get in from Germany and elsewhere in Europe. They were very traumatized. And also, people were kind of like, they wanted to get on with their lives. There's a sense that when you have experienced persecution, there's a kind of a sense of shame that a lot of people have. And, you know, and I, I all, all the time, you know, I would encounter people with the, the numbers tattooed on their arms. They had been in the camps and the Nazis had tattooed their arms and, you know, treated them like numbers. And that was like the best thing you could say. It was always something you didn't want to talk about or point out or anything. There was just like a sense of we, we want to get over that. I definitely think that uh, it's likely that the whole U.S. population wanted to, to, to move on. People wanted to get on with, with their lives. But what I'm much more upset about is not only did it happen, it could happen again. Not only could it happen here, it it is happening here at an accelerated pace. But all of this stuff has always been there. And what I want to know and I don't really understand is why there has been such tolerance for the anti-Semitism, for the racism, for the anti-immigrant sentiment, why there was not a concerted effort after World War II in the U.S. and elsewhere to do what it takes to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And it was like Deborah Lipstadt said, you know, once the genocide is happening, then it's by far too late. The time to stop it is before it gets big. You know, all cancers start small. The idea, oh, well, you know, you're being alarmist because it hasn't reached that point yet. Well, of course it hasn't reached that point yet. We can't let it get to that point because then it will be too late. This is not a difficult idea. Could this be educated away, this um, authoritarian sentiment? And and that's why I was talking about my youth. I mean, why does it have to be reinforced and reinforced throughout history? Certainly there could be some enlightenment and there was not. What we heard was, oh, you should love your neighbor and they had pro-UN jingles on the TV ads and stuff and everybody should get along and that's you know persevered and if we had talked about no you have to get rid of people like this or change re-educate them whatever could that make a difference I would hope so otherwise we're bound to have Trumpism uh, forever until we we have a civil war and then we'll see who wins but the other thing is, if you're talking about 
war, you have to talk about anti-war sentiment. And I think one lesson of the film is the futility of pacifism as a dominating philosophy in the face of, of Nazism, and maybe always, that the uh, limitations of a call just don't go to war are, are enor enormous, and you can't build a whole philosophy around that, but you can build a movement around it, and that can be dangerous. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. 